Hey, Apple's Theology listeners, I am super excited about this episode today because my guest is Michael Bird, one of the most prolific New Testament scholars on the planet, and also just one of the most fun. He's an Australian, so you get to appreciate his nice Australian accent. You get to hear about how he came to faith at a later age after growing up as an atheist, as a paratrooper in the Australian military and in military intelligence. We talk about his encounters with deadly Australian creatures. He sings a little bit from the musical Hamilton, and we talk about his excellent new biblical and systematic introduction to Christian theology Uh, the second edition of his Evangelical Theology from Zondervan. So if you're looking for a one volume, just one volume, Systematic Theology, that would be the one I would recommend for you to grab. I'm really excited to introduce you to Michael Bird. And as always, if you could go to wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a nice, honest five-star review, that really helps us to get the episodes out there. And now, without any further ado, Michael Bird. Michael Bird, welcome to Outpost Theology. Thank you for having me, Josh. It's great to be with you and your listeners. I I have to apologize right off the bat. I was trying to do the time difference between Australia and Oklahoma, and it was like 16 hours in my calculations, and somehow after uh, counting on my hands and toes and fingers, all that, I still messed it up by an hour. So thanks for being patient with me. That's right. You got to remember that kangaroo hours are shorter than American hours. Well, one of the one of the challenges I had in I'd wanted to talk to you for a while, but one of the challenges I had was trying to figure out what book to talk to you about because you've got a lot of them, and I've actually read several of them. I've got your uh, Jesus and the Eternal Son right here. I've got the big book with uh, Tom Wright over here, but the one I wanted to talk to you about um, today is is the second edition of your Evangelical Theology: A Biblical and Systematic Introduction, and uh, that's from. That's some Zondervan, but maybe the question to start with for folks who are, some of them will be familiar with you already, but some maybe not, uh, a systematic theology, or at least an introduction from a Bible scholar, what motivated you as somebody who had kind of specialized initially more in biblical studies to write something that's more in the realm of uh, systematic theology? I know you kind of joke in the the intro about, you know, to write a systematics or a dogmatics, you're supposed to do a PhD on Karl Barth or something like that. And what motivated you to, to write this, this particular book? Well, let me say, let me say two things. Uh, On the one hand, I tend to think that uh, the Christian studies area is incredibly fragmented with old Testament down the hallway, new Testament up the hallway, uh, historical theology and ethics and, and liturgy and everything sort of all sort of siloed away from each other. Uh, that, that is a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, uh, a lot of uh, Christian disciplines normally work together or people would, would uh, teach, write and work in more than one field. And certainly as a seminary professor in a medium sized college, I'm often required to teach in more than one area. So I tend to teach in New Testament and theology with with a little bit of church history around here and there as well. So uh, for that reason, I think it's quite normal and natural not to be confined to your own little silo, but to want to look around, write research and teach in some broader areas. that's, That's one reason. The second reason I wrote this book is that I wanted to use an thoroughly and consistently evangelical textbook in class. Uh, 
And what I found was a lot of very good systematic theologies or a lot of good intro to theology written by evangelical scholars, but I could not find anything that I thought was distinctly evangelical in the sense that it was suffused and defined by the gospel. And I reached the point where it was no longer the book I was uh, looking for. It was now the book I wanted to write. And I had to think about, well, well what, what does it mean to have a, a type of theology that is uh, discreetly defined by the evangel, by the gospel itself. And I started cooking away plans in my mind. And, and eventually in, in 2011 and 12, I was able to start executing uh, this plan for the first edition. And the big idea behind the book was to make the gospel the center boundary and integrating point in theology. Uh, that's, what I, that's what I've done. And it seems to have gone fairly well so far. Got a, a fair bit of traction, some good take up in various seminaries and colleges around the world. Yeah. Well, I think it's excellent. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I've been actually flipping around in it and reading various sections. It's already helped me out in something that I'm writing uh, currently. So it, it's a great, it's a great book. The, the title evangelical theology. And of course I'm in America, you're in Australia. You've kept that word evangelical. And then we know it's kind of a, a disputed term, especially, I don't know how it is yeah. in Australia, maybe, especially in America, it's a disputed term. Um, I, I know it means gospel, the evangel, but how, how do you go about doing that when it has so much baggage attached to it? Why do you hold on to the word and, and why do you think it's important to kind of reclaim or keep hold of that, that word? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I've got so many friends who have abandoned the word evangelical or have started using uh, a whole bunch of adjectives that they kind of preface at the front of it. They talk about being a global evangelical or an orthodox evangelical. The problem is, and this is somewhat specific to the American context, evangelical has come to mean a certain type of cultural uh, conservatism, but also a certain types of civil religion, okay, which, which, which is an innovation within America. In the rest of the world, it doesn't mean that. And I have to tell you that outside of America, most evangelical Christians uh, do not believe in the right to bear arms and form militias. Uh, that their main motto is not don't tread on me. And they don't believe that God helps those who help themselves. Every, evangel every evangelical Christian I know from Norway to New Zealand believes in universal health care. Okay, so there's a, a few issues like that you, you, you've got to remember. So I'm, I'm aware of the, 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 some of the negative connotations that um, evangelical can have. It can be used as a, a nakedly political partisan group. And that is not what I mean. Nonetheless, I believe evangelical is a good word. And I think I say in the second edition, you can prize it from my cold, dead hands. And that is because... I believe in the evangel. I believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that he is Lord, the offer of the forgiveness of sins and the renewal of creation. That is a good message. Evangel is a good word, and I'm willing to compete for it, fight for it, and I will snatch it away from partisans of the far left or the far right. Uh, evangelical belongs to the historic movement of Protestantism, that kind of 
synergy, that coming together of the Reformed Puritans and the Wesleyan Pietists coming together in parachurch ministries in global mission to seek the renewal of the churches through the recovery and the proclamation of the gospel. That is a good thing. It is a good heritage. It is a good word. And I'm not giving up on it because of some weirdos on Fox News or the way people on CNN always say it with a sneer on their face. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I, I need to say amen or something on that. Hey, I'll post theology listeners. I want to talk to you about our new honors program at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. If you or someone you know is interested in getting more out of your college experience, you can get a double major. That's two majors in the same amount of time for the same amount of money by being a part of our honors program. We meet in our historic La Quinta mansion. We have professors that team up from different disciplines and give individual attention to students. And you can get a major in any degree of your choice and a degree in letters, a degree in the humanities that teaches you how to think regardless of what field you're going to be ultimately serving in. So if you'd like to find out more about our honors program, just go to okwu.edu. You mentioned, you know, prying things from your cold, dead hands. And one of, one of the things I know about your bio is that you were, were you a paratrooper? Is that right? In a former life? Yes. Yep. Uh, I was a paratrooper in a former life. Um, spent 13 years in the military. Uh, was an infantry soldier, then went into military intelligence, and then saw out my army career, largely working as a chaplain's assistant. Yeah. Well, I, I've read a little bit of your bio, maybe it's on the, the Ridley website, but you mentioned the gospel, the evangel. When was it that you kind of came to faith? Can you share with listeners a little bit about how you came to transition from this military career into being a, a New Testament scholar and a, and a professor? Yeah, well, I grew up in a non-Christian home. It was sort of, you know, very sort of suburban and secular. Australia is not a particularly uh, religious country. I could tell you a whole bunch of um, stories and things. Uh, growing up, uh, everything I knew about Christianity, I learned from Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. That was pretty much what I learned. That and the, the odd kind of um, Christmas greeting card and that type of thing. Uh, and I, jo I joined the army and you know, you know, you're kind of away from um, your home, your, your family. You're a little bit dislocated and out of sheer boredom, I just thought I'd go along to a church. A friend of mine had invited me. So I thought I'd go along and do that. And I was expecting churches to be filled with a bunch of moralizing geriatrics, uh, people who were worried that somewhere, somehow someone was smiling. And, but I went to this church. It was a lovely Baptist church, a fairly new church plant meeting in a high school. And it was nothing like my uh, presuppositions would lead me to believe they were very nice and normal people. Actually, they weren't normal. They were abnormal because they were not just nice, but they had a kindness and a love that was of another world, like nothing I'd ever seen before. And, you know, I got to know them a bit and I heard the good message of Jesus Christ. Um, his, his, uh, his death for me, the atonement, his resurrection, the promise of life and forgiveness. And in 1994, you know, I just prayed to receive Christ and the world's been a different place ever since. Yeah, that's great. Well, to come back to your book, you know, you can often tell a lot about a systematic theology or about a theologian by sort of what doctrinal subject they choose to start with for their systematics or their dogmatics. And so you've got Bart, you know, Revelation, um, certain evangelical scholars will start with 
scripture because, you know, we learn about Christ. We learn about God through scripture. Uh, Catherine Sonderegger, I'm reading her new systematic right now. Uh, her first volume, she starts with, with the oneness of God or the doctrine of God, you know, Calvin knowledge of God. How do we have knowledge of God? So where do you start after your kind of your prolegomena and, and why do you choose to begin the way you do? Yeah. What, what I do in this book is I begin with the topic of eschatology and many people look at me as if I'm some kind of moron who begins with the last things. I mean, seriously, what are you on Michael? That's, that's what I get. That's what I get. Uh, but here's, here's my, here's my thing. Okay. Here's my, here's the, my, the method for my madness. All of theology is pervaded by eschatology. Okay. Or, or to put that in more layman talk, it's all pervaded by the now and the not yet. Mm. It's all about who Jesus is and who he will be revealed as the end of history. It's all a bit about being justified by faith. And uh, ultimately the resurrection, our own resurrection will be the incarnation of our very justification. Mm. You know, it's all about, you know, being the people of God now, but also being the people of God in God's new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So all of theology has this now and this not yet aspect. Mm. And that's why I think you've got to, got to put that, um, further up in your theological system. Uh, it, it's, it's not just about like, you know, things like the millennium and the tribulation and the return of Jesus, but understanding that everything in theology and Christian theology has got this, you know, living between the times, you know, one foot in the kingdom of heaven and one foot in, um, in the world around us. And I'm glad to say at least one other scholar, I think quite independently has taken a similar tack and that's Amos Young in his book, on global theology. I mean, he's, he's an Asian American scholar writing out of the Pentecostal tradition, and he does a similar thing of putting eschatology second. So uh, I'm, I'm, I, I think this, this, this may catch on. It may catch on, you know, kind of like, um, you know, wearing Crocs or, um, or eating, eating um, pho at Vietnamese restaurants. I think, I think this is, I think this is going to catch on. Do they have Crocs like the, the shoes in Australia or just, just the literal creatures? Uh, we have both. We have both. We have the literal crocodiles, which are very, very nasty um, um, sea lizards. Which is and scarier, then, though? Which is scarier between the two? Oh, definitely, definitely the uh, definitely the uh, the sea lizards in the water. Um, you come across one of them, it doesn't end well for you. Particularly the big salt water ones. Oh man, those things are yeah. scary. Uh, but you know, middle-aged men wearing Crocs—that's pretty scary too. Yeah. Well, I've got some questions. We had a little fun lightning round section here in just a bit, and I have some, some questions for you about Australian uh, creatures. So I'll, I'll save that uh, for there. But one of the things I've appreciated about the book is that it's, and under, you know, not surprisingly so, it's, it's a deeply biblical uh, approach to systematic theology. And coming from a, a New Testament scholar like yourself, I've, I appreciated that. Um, but it strikes me that there are many different ways to write a kind of biblically attuned systematic theology, right? And clearly Bart sees himself as trying to be true to scripture. Um, then you have somebody like Wayne Grudem, who's uh, single volume systematic, maybe even verges more towards kind of a biblicist systematic theology. Um, so, so can you talk about how your approach uh, maybe differs or is distinct in terms of attempting to write a, a robustly biblical uh, systematic theology. 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's different ways of being biblical. You've got Karl Barth, who's engaging in what he thinks is uh, consistent exegesis. John Webster talks about biblical reasoning. And you've got uh, Wayne Grudem, who is, you know, largely working at a, a reformed evangelical tradition and just trying to kind of work through, I mean, almost in a series of word studies, but bringing various con uh, concepts, biblical concepts together in a type of synthesis which you can understand. What, what I'm trying to do, I think, is a creative fusion, and that is using scripture as our primary authority, you know, our primary source for theology, whether you're talking about, you know, grace or the identity of Jesus, that type of thing. Uh, but I also try to bring in uh, a lot more perspectives from church history, from historical theology. You know, there's some topics, like, like on the Trinity, you can, you've got to have a good conversation with Bart. On election, you can have a good chat with someone like John Calvin and stick in a room with Jacob Arminius. I mean, they've got a, they've got a lot to talk about, believe me. Uh, and uh, when you're talking about nature, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you can talk about. I mean, what, what do we mean by the word nature because you know nature means different things to different people like when you and i think of nature we think of getting away from the city you know going out in nature and the serenity and the peace but if you live in the amazon rainforest or if you live in in the outback in australia nature is out to get you yeah. you know there's this big saltwater crocodile that's part of nature nature is nasty and it's coming at you yeah. to kind of gobble you up so yeah, I, I always start with scripture. I, I try to make that the uh, the base plate or the main source. But I think it's also good to bring in these different these different sources, these different conversation uh, tools, if you like, uh, to help us come up with a way of speaking about faith and having an obeying faith today. Mm -hmm. well, that might be a good place to ask about kind of how the second edition differs from the first, because I know you've brought in some, some new conversation partners and can you talk a little about some things that you've updated or added to this new edition? Yeah, there was a number of things I did. Uh, that I got the feeling that there were some sections of the book that were better than others. Things about the doctrine of God and Christology I thought were pretty good, but I had to confess the doctrine of humanity I thought was pretty weak in comparison. So I've added uh, a whole bunch of stuff on the image of God, particularly trying to understand the image of God through the lens of human disability. I think that's a, that's a very important way of understanding um, the, the image of God, because if your image of God denies or uh, diminishes um, uh, the image of God in people with certain types of disabilities, then uh, that, that's, that's not, not, not a good thing. Uh, also, I've added in that section something on human identity, because, you know, identity is one of those buzz buzzwords. You know, what is a human identity and what does it mean to speak of human identity from a Christian frame of reference? Mm -hmm. uh, I've also added some stuff on the doctrine of the church, like this new phenomena of multi-site churches. You know, uh, you know, particularly during the COVID crisis, where we're all meeting on Zoom or doing pre-recorded service or live shows. Uh, you know, what's your doctor of the church going to say about multi-site churches? Uh, another thing that's distinctive is, is not just the updates, like I've buffed up the stuff on the Trinity and the Atonement, but I, I've, I, I looked at the footnotes of the first edition and I said to myself, man, this feels very white, male and Calvinistic. So I think, I think I need to get some wider dialogue partners. So, you know, I, I've added a fair bit from the Wesleyan tradition. 
Uh, I did a fair bit of reading of Jacob Arminius. I've definitely added a lot more female theologians and female scholars. And I've also looked fairly widely at the global church. Uh, for me, in my neck of the woods, I'm far closer to Asia. So uh, Asian scholars and Asian Christian theologians are the, the more natural port of call. But you know, I tried to have a look at a few Africans as well and, and even the, uh, the odd um, South American or, or Latin American theologian. And that, that's something I think made it for a far more richer volume and gives it more of a, 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 a global feel than just saying a um, sort of a British American Anglo type of a feel, if you like. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the, the Wesleyan and the Arminian piece, and I teach at Oklahoma Wesleyan uh, University. And I taught a, speaking of teaching widely, you know, I teach like homiletics. I teach, I'm a theologian by training, but I, you know, I teach pretty broadly. And I taught a Romans class a few years ago and we used your Zondervan commentary on Romans from the story of God series. And I think that's the first time I maybe reached out to you is I had some students who uh, they performed the, uh, I think you call it Birdman raps the gospel, the gospel rap from your Romans commentary. Yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, they wanted to, they wanted me to tell you hello. Uh, I think they really badly wanted to be in on this call and perform the rap, but I, I nixed okay. that. And, well, but, what they can, well, you should know in the second edition of evangelical theology, it does have the council of Nicaea rap battle. Uh, so maybe they could perform the uh, council of Nicaea rap battle. That would be quite an achievement for, for those who don't know in the middle of my commentary on Romans six, I had a short little um, freestyle rap uh, about being um, baptized and being freed from sin with some uh, lyrical descriptions to that effect. But in the evangelical theology, second edition, I t do a whole kind of, um, yeah, kind of a, a, a theological debate that takes the form of the, of hip hop lyrics if you like, which, which I find funny and amusing and fresh. Other people may consider uh, grossly inappropriate and juvenile. Uh, it'll, it'll depend on your predilection. Well, one of the things, this is maybe I don't, we don't know each other super well, but just from your writing and, and listening to you on different podcasts or whatever, you've always struck me as a guy, you, you take God seriously, you take scripture seriously but it doesn't seem that you take yourself particularly seriously and you enjoy interjecting humor and even a little bit of lev just silliness sometimes into your work. Can you talk about why you think that's important and do we need a little bit more of that in the Academy? Yeah. I mean, I think we do. I think we do. Uh, you know, some people want to be very serious and austere all the time. I mean, that's like times to do that. Like, you know, like, you know, at a funeral. I mean, you know, you don't start cracking jokes at a, at a, at a funeral or something like that. Uh, that doesn't necessarily go down well. Uh, but, but I think, you know, humor is one of the things that makes life joyous and makes life worth living. And I think even in, uh, even in the midst of theology, uh, there are things to chuckle about. You know, uh, there are things we can we can laugh at. There's things we can reflect on. And yeah, and through the book, I kind of add these. You might call them like theological dad jokes. Well, let, let me give you one. Let, let, let me give you one. Maybe, you know, this one, Josh. Josh. Uh, did you did you know in heaven that God, the father can only use his left hand? Did you know that? Well, I only know it because I read that section of the book. So that's, that's yeah. the only reason. I'll yeah, let you the finish the punchline though. The reason why God the Father can only use his left hand is because Jesus is sitting on his right hand. 
Now I find that funny. It's a bit of a, a bit of a dad joke, but a, a few things like that I, I throw throughout the class uh, or, you know, when I teach and I, I just think that you know, students like it, it makes it, it makes it fun. It, it makes it fresh. It makes it enjoyable. And yeah, we, we, we just have, we have a good time. I mean, look, there's, there's some times where, you know, I have to take off my glasses and put on my serious voice. And when we talk about some real serious weighty topics, uh, but there's other times I, I, I think you can, you know, you can have a bit of a laugh and, and a bit of a joke and, and that's not to trivialize or to make the subject frivolous. Uh, but I think even God laughs with us. And I think God certainly laughs at us uh, a lot of the time as well. Yeah. No, I enjoy it. Well, come back to your Romans commentary, the students, they really enjoyed it. But one of the things I've heard you joke about before is being reformed. And I, I've heard you joke about like, being reformed. So you use TULIP acronyms for everything, you know, uh, I think maybe it was a lecture I listened to one time, but one of the things I noticed in your Romans commentary, especially specifically on Romans nine, which is of course, you know, this classical disputed text between uh, Calvinists, Arminians, Wesleyans, and the reformed folks. I thought as a Wesleyan theologian myself, I didn't really find anything to disagree with, with your treatment of Romans nine and, and, you know, that sort of nine through 11 section of, of Romans. So my question is, are you truly, or how reformed are you as a, uh, as a biblical scholar, as a systematic theologian, or just as a churchman? Yeah, well, that, that depends who you ask. Uh, you know, there's different types of reform. There's reformed in the sense of, well, I guess I'm not Catholic. So there's that type of reformed. Uh, there's kind of reformed that, you know, I, belong to a Protestant church and hold to its confessional contents. Then there are those who consider themselves to be truly reformed. And then there are those who I consider to be viciously reformed. Uh, they are reformed and they're angry about it. And they're angry with everyone. And I think everyone needs to know about their anger. Uh, I certainly have no care of those uh, latter categories. Uh, I'm, I like to think I'm reformed in the sense that I believe in the Reformation project, which is about recovering the apostolic gospel and having a, a form of faith that gives the primacy to scripture and, and appreciates wider tradition, utilizes it, but does believe in the primacy of, of scripture in all things. So, you know, in that sense, I'm reformed. Uh, there is a species of, of reformed theology called Calvinism. Again, that means different things to people. When I explain Calvinism to people, I, I usually say this, look, this is, this is Calvinism. Um, people suck in their sins. They are suckiness unto death. Okay. And the Lord who is rich in mercy takes the initiative to save them. That is the sum of my Calvinism. Everything else is commentary. Okay. Uh, in, in, now some people will dispute the, and the rest is commentary. Uh, but that's generally how I see it in the specific case of Romans nine. Uh, many people want to see this as a Calvinist versus Arminian debate about individual predestination. That is not what the text is about. Uh, Paul is not thinking of a kind of a, a personal individual soteriology of the predestination of in, individuals into salvation. He's really talking about two things. One, our sense of assurance. And secondly, that it's always been God's plan to bring Jews and Gentiles together into the one family of Israel, the family of Abraham. 
in fact. Now, you could argue that there are some implications that Paul makes for drawing out a doctrine of election. I'm very happy to, to give a tip of the hat to that. But the primary objective of Romans um, 9 and 8 to 9, I believe, is to uh, buttress a Christian view of assurance and to say, and, and God really wants Gentiles to come into salvation in Christ, and they belong there because they are elect. And I, I think a lot of the time we miss the main purpose behind the doctrine of election. The, elect, the doctrine of election is not meant to make us argue over who is elect and how do you tell. The main thing about the doctrine of election is if God has saved you, then that's what he's intended to do for all of eternity, okay? And so if God has saved you, you can be confident that those divine purposes of God in eternity past, he's definitely going to bring, uh, bring them to fruition, which is why nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I think once you conceive of it that way, rather than in light of 17th or 18th century tract wars between Wesleyans and Calvinists, uh, I, I think Romans 9 to 11 and chapter 8 makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Let's talk about atonement just just briefly. I you were nice enough to offer an endorsement for my last book, which was which was on atonement, and you're currently working, I think, helping with with Scott Harrow on an edited volume on uh, universal atonement or Amaraldianism was kind of the initial thought there. But uh, what drew you to the topic of that edited volume on universal atonement? And maybe for lay listeners out there, when we say universal atonement, we don't mean universalism, as in like everyone will ultimately be saved, but um, the idea that Christ dies for all without exception rather than only for the elect, or there's different versions, obviously, but can you talk about like what drew you to that, that subject in particular? Yeah, a, a number of things. So I've got a really good colleague in Scott Harrow and, and him and I are of a similar mind on this topic. And, and this, this is the problem. It, it seems like we're stuck in what I would call a theological two-party system. On the one hand, you've got the Wesleyans and the Arminians, who says that Christ died for everyone in the same way to make salvation possible. And then you've got the Calvinists and like-minded people who say, no, Christ only died for the elect to ensure that they would definitely uh, reach salvation. And it's, it's all about, you know, do you emphasize the efficacy of the atonement or its universal effect? Uh, what people don't realize is there actually is a third option. Okay, and this is called the hypothetical universalism, and it's associated with one particular chap called Moises Amaral. And what he does, he kind of like reconfigures reformed covenant theology so that God's decision to set forth Christ as Savior logically precedes um, God's decision. Um, to allow the fall and, and to allow human beings to go into sin, which then makes it possible for Christ to die for all people, you know, to be the universal savior, even if there is a special focus on saving the elect in a kind of more Calvinistic scheme. So it's kind of a, I don't know if it's the right way to call it a halfway point between the two, but it's more of a, it's more of a variation of the reformed theme that wants to incorporate a far more universal effect 
for Christ's death and, and, and how its benefits can be applied to others. And I think that's important because in the early phases of the Reformation, while they affirmed God's election, they also tended to affirm a universal atonement. And it wasn't until much later that the idea of a limited atonement or sometimes called deliberate redemption really becomes a key tenet of Protestant scholasticism. But in the early phase of the Reformation, and certainly amongst Lutherans and Anglicans as well, you have this sort of Calvinistic view of election combined also with a strong belief in the universality of the atonement. So Scott and I, if you like, want to kind of uh, open up a new front or popularize a kind of a minority report uh, about the extent of the atonement. Yeah. I think it's needed, you know, and especially it's been a, it became a debate a few years ago with the publication of a huge edited volume on limited atonement or definite atonement, trying to, to kind of, uh, I suppose, drive a stake in the ground there. And I, but I enjoyed reading Adam Johnson's book on the extent of the atonement or the, it's really a four views book that, similar to what you're saying is trying to say that there's actually more options out there than just maybe what we think of as the traditional hardcore reformed limited atonement or hardcore Calvinist limited atonement versus um, what might be the perception of the one view on sort of universal atonement. But, yeah. what, what you, exactly right. Wesley would say, and I don't know if this is, you know, this is very of course debatable biblically or whatnot, but that, you know, for him, one of the, the universal benefits of the atonement is dealing with um, universal guilt from Adam's fall, right? So somebody like Augustine, who who believes not just in original sin, but original guilt, right? That, um, and, you know, Wesley would say that one of the things that Christ's atoning work does for everyone is deals with that universal guilt so that no one will be damned and especially not, say, unbaptized babies for the guilt that's passed on from Adam. Do you have any thoughts on kind of that aspect of uh, universal atonement from in the, kind of a Wesleyan key? Uh, well, I'm certainly no, uh, no expert on Wesleyan theology, so I'm reticent to offer a discussion, but I mean, it comes down to the debate as to what kind of influence does Adam have on the human race? Is he just a bad example? Uh, does he give you a propensity towards sin, kind of like, you know, we all become our own Adam in our own way, uh, or do you get Adam's guilt also uh, imputed to you? Um, now, I, I generally think all three are, are correct. You know, Adam is a bad example. Um, he does have a kind of uh, effect on us, give us a propensity to sin. Uh, but in my reading of Romans 5, I, I do think there is a kind of um, guilt imputed to us, or, or at least... He is our representative uh, before God, you know, in, in, in that primordial time. And Christ becomes the new Adam and his own act of righteousness, his own obedience to his messianic vocation qualifies him to be the, the Passover lamb who would take away our sins. And he can provide atonement, not just for the church, but indeed for the entire world. So I don't know how that would uh, map onto a, a Wesleyan system explicitly, but I, I like to think that, uh, that John Wesley would give me a big old high five on that. Yeah. Well, there's more common ground, I think, often than is, is commonly thought. You know, Wesley has his statement where he says I, that he doesn't differ from Calvin, even, even a hair's breadth on original sin, you know, which mm -hmm. I think some folks would not actually be aware of that he would say, yeah, I, I totally agree with, with that point, you know. 
And can I give you one really good example of that? I mean, people tell me that, you know, oh, you, you, you can't have, you know, Calvinists and, Ar and Arminians and Wesleyans living together and working together in a church or anything. But there is a really good book called One Faith, edited by J.I. Packer, a Calvinist, and by Thomas Oden, who was a Methodist. And they actually go through various evangelical statements of faith over the centuries and show that there is a kind of broad consensus about things like the gospel, about faith, about salvation, about the life of discipleship, that, that people can accept whether they're Puritan, Pietist, Wesleyan, Arminian, Presbyterian, or Methodist. So uh, despite what certain people want to tell us in fortifying their own little denomination strongholds, that there's no way to build bridges with others, uh, books like that by Packer and, and Odin, you know, both now of blessed memory, mm -hmm. uh, show us that you really can. You mm -hmm. really can. Um, um, you know, cross over between the two and, 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 and maybe there are certain limits in how far you can go and certain slight differences will be, but remain. But the idea that it's impossible to have a rapprochement between Methodists and Calvinists, in, in my mind, is more about, uh, more about denominational propaganda than it is the lived reality uh, between a lot of these people who live, work and worship together in various places. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Hey Outpost Theology listeners, here at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, we want to serve the church. And that's why we're really excited about some new scholarship opportunities, some really substantial scholarships that we have specifically for the students, the dependents, the kids of pastors and missionaries. If your parent is a pastor in the Wesleyan Church and you enroll at Oklahoma Wesleyan University at our on-ground campus, you will receive a 75% off of tuition discount 75% for the Wesleyan missionary and ministers dependents. If your parent is a pastor in another denomination and you choose to come to our on-ground campus in Bartlesville, you'll receive a 50% off of tuition discount simply for being the dependent of a missionary or pastor. We have scholarships as well for students who are going into ministry, really substantial scholarships for students planning to be pastors, missionaries, and Christian leaders. You can find out more about all of these scholarships and the special rules that apply by going to okwu.edu. That's okwu.edu. How about some fun questions? You up for a lightning round here? Oh, you know I'm up for it. You know I'm up for it. All right, here we go. I know you're a musical theater fan, and I know you like the musical Hamilton. So if you could play any character in the musical Hamilton, which one would it be? I think it would have to be George Washington. Ah, see, that's my, that was my second choice. I was going to say Aaron Burr first and George Washington Second, uh, George, George Washington, because we're outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and outplanned, and we got to make an all-out stand. And I'm going to need a right-hand man. That's right. That's right. I had to get onto my uh, three-year-old today for singing a particular line from that musical that was not uh, appropriate. So we'll leave that off the. Uh, well, <laughs> let's keep it PG. Let's keep it That's PG, right. Josh. Okay. Do you remember how we, you and I, Michael Bird and Josh McDonald, met in person the first time? and what I asked of you on that first encounter. Okay. Uh, was that, um, where is the men's room? I, I... <laughs> no, that's not it. Uh, I, I do remember getting a, a, an email about, um, if some of my students have done a, um, uh, a little video about, uh, you know, that, that thing from Romans six and the commentary that that's what I remember. You might have to, that's, might that's have to help okay. me out. Other... 
I don't feel bad because there's a lot of bald guys with glasses at ETS. So I blend in really. Uh, so <laughs> the first time we met in person, I think we had just used your Romans commentary in, Ro in, our, in my Romans class. The other commentary we used was Doug Moose. And so the students, to add a bit of levity, every time I said, uh, moo's name in class, they would make the noise of, you know, a moo cow. And every time I said bird in class, they would make some sort of bird noise. And so I think the first time we ever met, I approached you out of the blue and asked if you would record a bird noise for my students to play in class. And you provided an outstanding impersonation of a kookaburra. I was going to say, I thought I probably did a kookaburra because that's that, that, that is because those things are loud and obnoxious and uh, they're like, yeah, you know, you know, when you've heard, a, you know, when you've heard a kookaburra. Well, that leads to my next question. So from what little I know of Australia, like half the creatures there can kill you um, in the wild. So my question is, have you ever had a scary animal encounter in Australia with one of your, you know, deadly creatures and, and what would that be? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, several, um, I've been charged by wild boars, you know, I had them lucky for me. I was in the army at the time and we were actually hunting the boars with automatic <laughs> weapons. So I had kind of like an Austrian made assault rifle and, uh, uh, the scorecard read M Michael one <laughs> boar nil. Uh, so that went all right. I've, uh, I did have a scary event once with me and some kids. There was like a little river and there's a little island in the middle of the river. And we kind of like waded along and we saw these eggs on the ground. I thought, oh, that's funny. And then the next thing I know, this massive eight foot long snake starts um, coming towards us. And I kind of yell snake and all the kids with me freak out. We all just basically dive in the water. And uh, you ever seen like uh, four Australian people kind of walk on water to save their lives? That was it. So that, that, was, that was one thing that was scary. And, uh, and probably not another time when I was out wading in some um, hip deep water, uh, about 30 feet away, I saw this fin come out of the water. Uh, 30 feet from where I was. And this is like in hip deep water. And that was pretty terrifying. So me and my friend, we just legged it through this water to get to the bank. Uh, but then we noticed, but then when this fin came out of the water, it would also like blow out some water. And then we realized we were in fact running from a dolphin. <laughs> well, if you could have, you hate coffee, don't you? Is it, do you have a thing against coffee? My feelings, my feelings uh, about coffee are very similar to how Nancy Pelosi feels about Donald Trump. <laughs> okay. Well, if you could have tea, I think you're drinking tea right now. Is that right? Yep. You, yep. Got my tea. If you could have tea with anyone from church history, we're not talking about like, you know, uh, Jesus or Paul, but people from, you know, subsequent church history, who would it be? Uh, that would definitely be Irenaeus. He's one of my favorite um, fathers of church history. Uh, maybe Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, I think that were pretty good. But yeah, I, I definitely like the idea of sitting down. The, the other, actually, to come to think of it, some of the heretics would be fun as well. Yeah. I would really like to, you know, sitting down with Marcion, uh, you know, a famous heretic from church history. Um, th that might be informative. I mean, did, did you really say all the stuff that, that Irenaeus said about you? Did you yeah. really do that? I mean, I think that'd be fun. Oh, that's good. All right. This is a little, this is the last one. This is a little more serious one, but you know, you're in Australia, I'm in kind of the Bible Belt in the United States, and you've written this book, Evangelical Theology. 
if you had some advice for American evangelicals on, you know, could be anything to, uh, to uh, be a more gospel-centered, gospel-driven people, what, what would you say as kind of an Australian, as an outsider to American evangelicalism? Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, uh, the number one thing, and I think this is not just true of Americans, this is just true of all Christians, whether in Asia, Africa, or Australia. The number one thing has to be sorting out um, what do you believe on the basis of faith and what do you believe on the basis of your culture, okay? Mm. Uh, because often we think that, you know, I believe this because I'm a Christian, but in fact, it's more like I'm believing this on the basis of my culture or all the way uh, I was raised or the environment I was raised in, you know, how much of my religion is a product of my environment rather than rooted in the actual uh, Christian tradition and the teachings of, of Christ and the way of Christ and the life of faith. I think that is, that is the biggest one. And I, I mean, I guess that's true everywhere. That's true everywhere, sure. but I see it particularly acute in America where being Christian can be bound up very closely with particular type of culture. Sure. And, you know, at one level, it means you have a kind of charming nominalism anywhere you go. Uh, you know, there's this sort of um, kind of Christian ambience, certainly like in the, in the Bible belt. Uh, mm-hmm. But it also means you can have Christianity easily weaponized politically, either towards the progressive left or to the, 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 the political right. And, you know, I find that very unhealthy when Christianity is just something to be weaponized and retooled for certain political projects that people have going on. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. What do you think are some ways around that danger of, of having a sort of culturally determined Christianity? Obviously, one you kind of mentioned is including voices from around the world, like you've done in this second edition um, to your book. Are, are there some ways to kind of ensure that our churches, especially for pastors, but even for folks like you and I who are professors training future pastors, how do we avoid that sort of culturally determined form of evangelicalism? I think the number one way is to get out of your bubble, to get out of your silo. Don't hang around with people who are just like you. You know, every morning, you know, I get up and I I say, hey, Google, play CNN, you know, or I'll listen to a bit of Fox News, you know. Um, you know, I want to get different perspectives, you know, get out of your bubble and uh, learn from different people who are cut from a different kind of cloth. Okay. And, you know, maybe that, I mean, if you're a pastor, you know, I think it helps if you join a, a pastor's fraternal where it's not just a bunch of white guys in your denomination, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, talk to some African American pastors, some uh, Latino or Hispanic pastors, talk to people who have lived outside America, or dare I say, go and visit other countries and not just for the purpose of colonizing them with your own things, you know, that, that you've got and the Americanization of other places you go, but, but go and go as a servant. So I'm not here to teach you how to do church. I'm here to learn from you. Okay. Mm. So I think if you can, if you can mix up that diversity, you, you will have a far more, uh, enriched experience of global Christianity. And that will be a huge resource to you in your own global context. And let me give you an example. If you're worried about being somewhat alienated and marginalized in your own context, which, you know, 
could be increasingly happen. I've got a book coming out on religious freedom in a secular age. So I know about some aggressive forms of secularism. But if you, if you want to know how do I lead my church when I'm marginalized, no one really likes me, go talk to some African-American brothers because yeah. they, they've been doing that for 200 years. So what's, what's it like to do church when the majority culture doesn't like you? Um, they've got a lot of experience at that. Or talk to some Coptic Christians in Egypt yeah. because they know what it's like where, you know, where they are really being hounded and persecuted by government, mm-hmm. by culture, by gangs. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you can get out from that. Now, let me say, I mean, I also think there are some good things about American Christianity. I mean, this is the land of Billy Graham and Chick-fil-A, you know, there are, there are some good things and I find in the American church, a great, um, a great generosity as well. I mean, I've traveled in many places across America uh, amongst uh, all sorts of different Christian groups. And I've, I've always been treated like royalty and I've really loved it. And I think there is a great tradition of hospitality. There's great resources and great will. I, I believe there is, you know, power, power, wonder working power in the goodwill of the American Christian churches when they are doing their best at their best. They truly are a city on the hill and living up to the ideals of the, the initial founding fathers and who, who, who wanted a kind of new Jerusalem. Uh, but but there's also other signs to that we know where it can go a little bit ordinary and a little bit dark and maybe the way to mitigate that is by you know learning from friends and partners in the global church and even just learning to see ourselves as others see us you know we may think of ourselves uh, like Martin Luther um, or Martin Luther King but maybe we sometimes come across as more Pope Gregory the Ninth. Uh, than we realize or something like that. So I would just in, encourage Christians to network with people outside of their own fold, um, denominationally, ethnically, and theologically, meet people who are a little bit further left, a little bit further right. And, you know, uh, and, I, and I think you'll learn and grow from it. Yeah, that's good. Well, we want to have, speaking as one American, we want to have you back when this whole pandemic thing's over and, uh, the conferences are back up and whatnot. Yeah, I, I definitely want to. You guys are in Indiana. Uh, I'm in Oklahoma. There's another oh, Oklahoma. one. In, yeah, one of our sister schools is in Indiana. Yeah. Okay, we'll, yeah. we'll go to okay Oklahoma. That sounds great. Musical, by the way, great. That's musical. right. That's another musical. Oklahoma, yeah. very close to Texas. Yeah. Very close to Texas. Now, if I'm correct, that's that is that Tiger King country. Oklahoma is that's what we're really known for now uh, during the pandemic yeah. is Tiger King that's the big that's the Tiger thing. King well I was yeah I mean me and my wife started watching that and it was hypnotic it was hypnotic and we it was like watching a train wreck in slow motion yeah and uh yeah I mean I know some aspects of it were somewhat tawdry and and tragic but it was like this is so weird I mean the only normal person on the on the entire show was the drug dealer um, who they interviewed, who was smuggling drugs and, and through snakes. Uh, he was the most normal person I could honestly relate to in the entire show. But uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's, I guess you got that there, that there too. But yeah, I, I'd love to come through. We could, uh, we could go visit the tiger farm or something. I don't know. <laughs> It'll be some sort of great mu- museum, I'm sure, by that point. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, Mike, what are you working on now? You mentioned one book on uh, maybe kind of religious liberty or something like that, but I know you're, you're always working on something. Can, what's kind of on the... On always the working on, well, coming out very soon is the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers. 
Uh, that's 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 more of an erudite scholarly volume with the best experts on the world on the in the world on the apostolic fathers. That's the generation after the New Testament, like Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Papias, Polycarp, that type of thing. But that's that is as uh, as they say a cracker lack in volume. I've got a book coming out called Seven Things uh, About the Bible I Wish All Christians Knew, and that's a little bit like you know how do you wrestle with some of the big problems of Scripture? Here are some tips to interpret the Bible. Here's how you keep Christ at the center of reading scripture, that type of a thing. Um, coming out along, as I said, that, that book on religious freedom in a secular age. And I'm also working on a New Testament theology very, very, very gradually. Uh, but I'm also chipping away at a book on early Christology. Uh, when the early church said Jesus was divine, when they said he was a God, what did they mean by that? Now, I've touched upon that already in my book, Jesus, the Eternal Son. But when the early church considered Jesus as divine, what were the categories of thinking about divine persons in antiquity? And, 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 how, and how did they contribute to that discussion and that kind of uh, way of talking about God being active in Jesus? So that, that's, a, that's a big thing I'm, I'm gradually chipping away at too. Well, thanks so much for being on uh, Outpost Theology, Mike. And if folks want to follow you, I know you've got a great blog. It's Euangelion, right? Is that right? Euangelion, Euangelion. And so they can maybe just Google your name or, or they can find your blog there. But are you on, uh, let's see, you've got a, I've seen a, maybe a podcast that you've been doing with Amy Bird. Is that going to be like a multi-part thing or? Yeah, me, me and Amy Bird, although her name is Bird spelt with a Y, which kind of weirds me out, but you Americans seem to do that. Uh, me and Amy Bird do a kind of little vodcast, I think about once a month. Uh, Amy Bird is a wonderful Presbyterian lady in uh, Maryland, and she's written a number of books. She, she's written the book with the best book title ever. It's called Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, now, that, that every, every time I'm feeling a little bit depressed and sad, I just think of her book title, and it really does cheer me up, because that, that, is, that, that, that is literally one woman, you know, lifting up her sword, saying to a kind of valley of men, saying, I'll take you all on. I'll take you all on. And uh, that's a terrific book. So I did that with Amy. Um, you know, I appear in and out a few different podcasts around the traps. Probably the main way to follow me on my uh, daily journal of thoughts, musings, and jokes is probably on Twitter, you know, at mbird12. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks so much. Well, thank you, Josh, for um, helping me out. All the, all the best to you and your students in Oklahoma. I uh, hope they keep up their studies in Romans and homiletics and um, they combine a bit of hip hop and homiletics and biblical studies. Uh, that would be very good for the, for the future. We'll pass on the latest uh, rap videos for you. Oh, that'd be, you know, I live for, the, I live for it, man. I really live for it. Right. Thanks, Mike. Hey, you did it. You made it through another episode of Outpost Theology at the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. Thanks to Michael Bird, my guest today. And you can follow him at mbird12 on Twitter or check out his blog, Uangelion. Thanks to Michael Bird. And as always, if you go to wherever you listen to this podcast, wherever you download your episodes and leave us a nice review, that really helps us to get the episodes out there. We'll see you next time on Outpost Theology.